I did have a long list of people that are serving right now in the service. I was going to go through this this morning, but uh, because we're doing the Lord's Supper this morning, we might be a little bit pressed for time. But I just want to bring your attention to the bulletin board kind of thing that's down the hall on the right-hand side. Uh, a lot of those people that are on that board were were kids here at one point that have grown up and they serve. Timmy Hines is a kid that his parents weren't really active here, but he was very active in my home school group that I did on science for years and years and years. That's how we got to know the Wilson family uh, and all of that. He's been in the Air Force now ever since he graduated from high school. Our son Matthew is there, our son-in-law Justin and uh, and other people are there too. So just take note of those folks and, and I would encourage all of you to be in prayer for them because they sometimes serve in harm's way uh, because they are there to help protect you and I from things. So please do that. We're going to be turning in the book of Job this morning to chapters uh, 5 and 6. Last week we saw, or the week before that, we saw that Job was the first one out of the group of four to speak, uh, and, he, and he spoke forth in, in great anguish uh, and tried to verbalize the great suffering he was going through, which all of us understand is really not even possible to do that. Uh, but then after he finished his first discourse, then, then one of his friends, Eliphaz, uh, spoke out, and unfortunately, he didn't really give any consolation or comfort to Job and, uh, and what he said. He challenged Job with the idea, and you can see this basic argument portrayed over and over again from these three friends of Job, and that is basically that he's suffering because of wrong that he has done. And uh, we've decided this, that sometimes people actually do suffer as consequences of wrongdoing on their part, Right? We know that happens very often, but we can never conclude that people are suffering because of that. Sometimes people suffer for other reasons, and we only have to look to Christ for that. Christ suffered. Was, does Christ suffer because he did anything wrong? Absolutely not. He suffered, in fact, for doing what was perfect and right. And there's a sense in which every Christian should have some taste of that in their life. Because let me tell you, if you live a life according to the will and purpose of Christ, there will be times when you probably are going to suffer at least a little bit from it. So we can never conclude when we look upon people and their suffering that they're suffering because they've done something bad. Now we can say this, that all suffering takes place as a consequence of sin. Of man's sins. Christ's suffering was a consequence of the sin of man. When we suffer, we may be suffering sometimes because of our own sin, but we, other times we suffer because of the sins of other people being poured out upon us. So there is a sense in which sin is always connected with suffering, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're suffering because it's our sin. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to read 5 and 6. 
Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which, uh, to which one of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I've seen the foot raiding uh, or taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There is no one who delivers them. The hungry eat the, his harvest, and he takes it uh, even out of thorns. I'm reading the wrong chapter. <laughs> chapter 6. <laughs> oh, that my vexation were weighed. This is Job replying to what we were just reading about. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and my calamity laid in the balances. For then uh, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does a wild donkey bray when he has grass or the ox low when it's, he has fodder? Can that which is, a is, is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mountain? My appetite refuses to touch them. There are, uh, they are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, uh, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. And when they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They, uh, they go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they uh, were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift or your wealth, offer a bribe, or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me or deliver me from the adversary's hand or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Has not man a hard service on earth? And are not its days like the days of a hired hand, like a slave who longs for the shadow, like a hired hand who looks for his wages? For I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. 
My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol shall, or, or does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him any more. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. And you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. You notice here, I want to point this out in case I forget it later. At this point, Job shifts his, his attention. He's no longer speaking to his friends. He's speaking directly to God in these last, past, last verses of this chapter. When you say, my, uh, my bed will comfort me, my counsel is my complaint, then you scare me with dreams, you terrify me with visions, and so I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life, I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is a man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? What do you uh, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth, and you will seek me, but I shall not Well, just remember this, that you're, you're going to see this over and over again, that the perspective that is just portrayed over and over again by uh, Job's three friends is this, this idea of what we call retribution theology, and that is that when people suffer, it's because of something bad that they've done. And as we've already said, that there is a good argument that we can make, that that may be true a lot of the time, but it's not always true, that sometimes good people really do suffer, and Christ is the principal example of that for all of us. He suffered a great deal, uh, more than even our dear friend Job did. What Job is saying here, basically, I'm just going to kind of summarize this as best I can, uh, is to his, to his friend, Eliphaz, and I guess to the other two guys at the same time, is that you, you clearly do not understand what's going on here. You clearly do not understand the nature and the degree of the suffering that I am enduring. In essence, it's one of those things that unless you are in my position, unless you are in my place, you cannot, you will not, you do not understand exactly what I'm going through. He tries to express the, the level of his anguish early on in chapter 6, where he says this in the very first couple of verses. 
Oh, that my vexation were weighed and my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. There, therefore, my words have been rash. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying this. He's saying my suffering is so great that if you took all the sands of the sea and you put them on one end of the balance and then you put my suffering on the other end of the balance, that my suffering would exceed the weight of all of the sands of the sea combined together. Now, I'd imagine that most of us in this room have suffered, and some of us have suffered a great deal, but I don't think that any of us would probably ever describe our suffering as being that great. But there's an, in essence, what Job is saying here is my suffering is something that you know not one diddly squat about because you have never been there yourself. The only way that anyone could understand and the only way that you and I could understand exactly where Job was at this point would it be to suffer like he is. That his suffering has brought things to a head. I think it's a warning for us to sometimes jump to the conclusion that so-and-so seems to be a little bit on the wimpy side. Or sometimes we say, if you know so-and-so, if they would just do this or they would just do that, then, then the, the suffering that they've got going on might be alleviated or at least lessened a little bit and or that sort of thing. I think we need to be very cautious of trying to put our feet in the shoes of people that are walking on ground that we have never been on before. It's very easy for us to do things contrary. It's very easy for us to be very much like the friends of Job when it comes to real life experiences ourselves. We need to be very careful when we minister to people that are in very great suffering. And the last thing we can ever do is try to explain to them that I know exactly what you're going through. I feel exactly what you feel. Because the truth is this, is we never, ever can actually walk in someone else's shoes unless we're able to put our feet in those shoes exactly, and we cannot do that. What Job is charging his friend with, and we're going to see this over and over, is that you have absolutely no compassion. You look at life from a literal perspective, and you conclude things in such a manner that comes across as being, and you're going to see this, they never express any compassion for their friend at all. They are not helping him. What they are doing over and over again is they are actually increasing his suffering. We need to be very, very careful in our, our ministering to other people and never come to the conclusion that I know exactly what you're going through. Because we never do. Because we are individual people and we all have different kinds of experiences in our life and all of those experiences have everything to do with what's going on with me right now. 
the only person that ever truly understands how we're suffering and the magnitude by which we're suffering is Jesus Christ. How much do you know about the prophet Jeremiah? Did you know that if, if there's anything close to the equivalent of a Job in the Old Testament, that Jeremiah is that person? That very often he's called the suffering prophet? His life was defined by suffering, and he expresses that suffering in the book of Lamentations. I don't know how much you know about Lamentations, but that's what it is. It's Jeremiah lamenting in the book of Lamentations. And this is what he says about himself in chapter 3, verse 1 and following. I am a man who has been afflicted under the rod of his wrath against me. He turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Though I cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Can you imagine a prophet of God saying that? I just bring this to your attention so you'll understand that there are a lot of our brothers and sisters in the past that have endured a lot of hard, difficult things. Job's not the only one. Jeremiah is a very good example of the same sort of thing. And we understand this, <clears throat> that Jesus is ultimately, there's a sense in which you could call Job a suffering servant. You can call Jeremiah a suffering servant. There's a sense in which you should be able to call all of us a suffering servant. Because in Christ, as Christians, we will suffer in this world for sometimes for unconnected reasons, but sometimes we will suffer just simply because we're connected with Jesus. It goes with the turf. Job in verse 4 in chapter 6 pictures God as an archer who is using him for target practice. I mean, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like sometimes God's shooting arrows at you? <laughs> Maybe you're trying to do everything you can do to avoid them, but they keep striking you, and, and unfortunately sometimes they strike you in your very heart. He under, Job understands this, that even though God may not be doing things directly, that God is almighty, God is all-powerful, and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera, and he has foreordained everything that comes to pass. So what's falling upon Job, there's a sense in which it's coming by the hand of God. He understands that. And the same thing is true for us. Always. God has his reasons in everything, and he sometimes lets us know what those reasons are, and other times he doesn't. But what I'm telling you is this, is you will never suffer for no reason. That there is a reason for it. Always. And the last thing we can believe is that God has left us, or the last thing we ought to believe or want to believe or should believe is that I'm suffering because God just doesn't love me so much. Or I'm suffering because God has deserted me 
Let me tell you, if you believe those things are even possible, you don't know God. You don't know God. When you know Christ, Christ will never, ever leave you. He is with you always. Through the good times, certainly, but also from the worst of times. Maybe you've had friends and families that have deserted you at times. To see, this is one of the most consoling things or gifts that we get from Christ is that is knowing that even though anybody and everybody else might leave me and desert me, Christ never will. Ever. And that means he is always with me, not only in the good times, but he's also there with me in the very bad times. Will we ever doubt that? You betcha. Did Job doubt it? Certainly. He's wondering, what in the world is going on here? And what is going on for a lot of reasons? And one of the reasons is this, is there are lessons that Job's going to learn for this. He would not learn otherwise. God is here. God is working in Job's life, even though to Job it doesn't appear to be true at that point. These things are happening to Job because Job needs these things desperately to happen to him. And God, being the loving Father that he is, he will never withhold from us the things that we need. Ever. Notice here I didn't say the things that we want. I said the things that we need. Your suffering as a believer never goes to no avail. It accomplishes things. Things that you may not even be aware of. There's a good chance that something that's happened in your life has had a real impact upon someone else that you don't maybe even know or know anything of. But Job and Jeremiah understood this, and we need to understand this as well, and that is that because God is all-powerful and absolutely sovereign, there's a sense in which he's the author of any and all suffering that, that anyone endures. But it's very different when it's his children that are suffering. Because we have the absolute assurance that he is there with us. Has God deserted Job? No, Job may feel like it. He, he may not have this comfy, cozy feeling that, you know, God is sitting here right beside me. And I think he'll feel his arm around my shoulders or something like that. But he's there. His heart is grieving for Job. Talk about people hurting. Let me tell you something. We have never hurt any of us to the degree, by any stretch of the imagination, that God has suffered. We, we, we serve a God, and that God is a God who knows real suffering. He suffered in ways that none of us ever have or ever will to a magnitude that goes way beyond the one that Job uses here as the sands uh, you know, in the sea. 
The suffering that God has endured on our behalf is unimaginable. There's no way of expressing it at all. We will never understand it. But we have a God who has suffered unbelievably for us. Don't ever forget that and let that define your understanding of what part and what place suffering plays in my own life. Job uses three metaphors, or rhetorical questions, rather, in verses 5 through 7. While donkeys and oxen bray or bellow for their f- food, well, we would say, well, that's a obvious answer there is yes. <laughs> he says, can tasteless foods be eaten without salt? And is there no flavor in the slime of an egg white? And we would say whatever we would say. Uh, but rhetorical questions always are asked. You ever use rhetorical questions when you have conversations with people? We don't do it much, but find that very common in the book of Job. In other words, these are questions that have obvious answers to them. Anybody that reads the question, they will know what the answer is to that question. But these things are being used to drive home particular points. The fact of the matter is that from an entirely human perspective, Job's circumstances seem to be hopeless. I mean, he is longing for death. He's praying for death. He sees death as the only possible way of being blessed at this point. Boy, is God going to surprise him. Now, you and I know the rest of the story. We know how the story ends. It turns out in the end that Job is blessed far more than he was before. Bigger how? Big, more kids, bigger family. All those things that have been taken away from him, God multiplies in the end. And one of the things that Job is very clear on is that is no matter how bad his circumstances are, he understands and trusts in his knowledge that God can overcome every one of them. He's not doubting. You're not going to find him anywhere doubting God's ability to overcome all of these things. He knows he can do it always. The only thing he questions is why doesn't he? Why hasn't he? He uses more rhetorical questions in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. What strength do I have that I should hope? The obvious answer is none. What prospects do I have that I should be patient? None. 
Do I have the strength of stones? No. Is my flesh bronze? No. Even here, Job understands this, that he is not able to fix it. He can't fix this situation. Now, there are people in this room who believe no matter what comes, I can work it out. I can fix it. Some of you are fix-it people. And very often when there's a problem, you set about fixing it. And very often, you do. But is there anyone in this room that has ever fixed everything they tried to fix? The answer is no. We all have circumstances we can look back on and we understand that things would probably would have been better off if I had tried not, not tried to fix it. But my trying to fix it sometimes makes things worse. Job has a real connection with reality. I think very often we don't. He knows what he can do and he knows what he can't do. He doesn't deviate from that at all. He understands fundamentally this principle, and the principle is this, is if my circumstances are going to change, God is the one who has to do it. He's the fixer, not me. And I know that some of you are suffering unbelievably, maybe right now, and I want to remind you of that, that no matter what your circumstances are, don't think for one minute that God has left you, that God has deserted you. He is there with you. He is bearing you up. What you need to do is just lean upon him and he will take care of you through the thickest and the thinnest times. I think probably one of the things with Job that surprised him at this point was this is that when his three friends begin to speak, they don't help him. In fact, what they do is they attack him. Can you imagine how probably lifted up his heart was at this point when from a distance he saw these three guys coming to his aid? Knowing they were special to him, knowing they had come at very long distances just to be there with him. Did he expect them to be able to cure him from what was going on with him? Probably not, but, but it was just the comfort of having those three guys there with him that were willing to stick with him through the thick and the thin. They sat there for a whole week in absolute silence. Now we know this, that during that week, they were formulating probably some of the things that they wanted to say to Job, but they just hadn't said them yet. Because when he starts to speak, they see this as an invitation now for them to start speaking. But he gets no peace and comfort at all from anything that any of them have said this far or will say.
He likens them to wadis. You know what a wadi is? Very common in the ancient Near East and in the, in, the, in the Near East today. And that is places where sometimes there's running water during particular times of the year, like in the springtime when the snows in the mountains melt and you have these streams running down from the mountains. But once all the snow is melted and that water's gone and you get into the dry season, those things dry up. And that's what he's likening his friends to. You're like a stream that, that runs sometimes and good stuff comes out, but then eventually you're, you're just all dried up. That your words are not doing anything. They're hurting. They're not helping. In other words, what he's saying is his friends is you've left me high and dry in a very lonely place all by myself when I needed you the most. In other words, what he's saying to them is you are fair-weather friends. You know, I thought you were really, truly my friends that would sit with me through thick and thin. But, but in what is going on here, it's becoming very apparent to me that you're just simply fair-weather friends. You're there for me in the good times. But when something like this comes along, then you leave me. I mean, he is really disappointed because he has expected from them support, comfort, and advice. And he gets everything but that. May it be a lesson to all of us. Chapter 7, he goes into... Describing what nights are like for him. You know, sleep is something. I think sleep is one of the very nicest gifts that God has given to us. <laughs> you know, there are times set aside every day when we can lay down and we can rest and we get up very often and we feel comforted and, you know, just ready for the day and re-energized and and all that kind of stuff. But what Job says here is that may be the way your nights are. My nights are not that way at all. That I dread my nights. Because I lay down in my bed and I can't sleep. And when I do sleep, my sleep is terrible sleep. It's not restful sleep. It's, it's sleep that's defined by anguish and hurt. And, 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 and not only in my body, but also in my spirit. I don't know about you, but many of us are getting older, and I used to sleep really good for a long time, but as I'm getting older, I don't sleep very good at all. At all. And it's not unusual for me to get four or five night, uh, hours in a night. And I don't know what the problem is, because it's not necessarily because I'm really disturbed about anything or I'm worrying about something or something along those lines. I just, I'll go to bed at you know, 11 o'clock, and then I wake up at 3, 3 o'clock, and I'm wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, 
ready for the day. But the problem is I'm not really ready for the day. <laughs> so I'll lay there, you know, for an hour. And you know, let me tell you, a lot of times I don't waste that hour that, that I pray for all of you guys every week. And, and one of the things I'm doing some of those nights is I'm taking advantage of that prayer time when it's really quiet and I can focus on it and this, that, and the other. And, uh, and sometimes I'll go back to sleep, but sometimes I don't. Sometimes I come in here to work after I've only gotten four or five hours sleep. And it's hard to function like that. You can, anybody can do it for a day or two, but you know, once you get, you get into weeks and months and whatever of that, then can you, can, so can you imagine what Job has been through just as far as his sleep cycle goes? How totally exhausted he's got to be at this point. Well, I can't stop here. <laughs> what he does in the closing verses, is he, he questions God. He questions God's intentions. And, and I think this is here for a lot of reasons. And one of those is this, is we under, need to understand something. That is as close as Job walked with God. There were not times when he had doubts and, and this, that, and the other. When he was pushed to his limit. And sometimes over his limit. One of the things we should, should glean from all this, that, that Job was many things, but one of those was he was decidedly human, just like we are. He calls him the watcher of mankind in verse 20. And the fact is this, is we know that God, in fact, does see all. He knows all. And he hears all. In other words, there are absolutely no secrets among people from God. And this is true for every person, not just believers. God hears every word that we say. He sees everything that we do. He knows everything that we think. There are, we may have secrets from other people, but we have absolutely no secrets from God. One of the things that, uh, you know, re remains somewhat uh, underlying in all of this is this understanding of the need of a Savior, which will come to, to, to fore in places. He, he will just say at one point, I know that my Messiah lives and that he will walk upon this earth. But he's going to come to that point after he's been driven more and more and more. But the fact of the matter is God is the watcher of people. And that's not just believers, it's unbelievers. You and I have all kinds of secrets from other people, but none of us have one secret from God, period. And when we come to that point of understanding that, 
it should absolutely amaze us how much he cares for us. You know, all those bad thoughts you had this week, he knows. Those things that you said under your breath, he heard them. One of the things that really should stand out for us in all of this, and that is for Job, the love of God was not dependent upon what Job did or didn't do or what Job said or didn't say. God's love for Job is not affected by any of this at all. He doesn't think less of Job than he did before. He doesn't love Job less than he does now. But one of the things I think we all need to understand is this, is God cannot just wave a magic wand and absolve us of all our sins. Some people think, seem to think that he could do that. But the fact of the matter is every sin has to be atoned for. Absolutely every sin has to be atoned for. In other words, the penalty for it must be applied. This is in God's court. And the truth is this, is every wrong that anyone has ever been done has either been already atoned for by Jesus Christ or that person is going to be held account for that sin. It's true for everybody. And just remember this, that our salvation did not come without God suffering a bunch. We can't even describe it. The weight of all the stars and the heavens and the earth doesn't come close. It is way beyond our comprehension to understand the suffering that God was willing to undergo so that sinners like us could have salvation and become children of the living God. That's what this table's all about. Jesus is, you know, Jeremiah was a suffering servant. Job is a suffering servant. You, in a sense, are a suffering servant. But Jesus is the suffering servant. He did not deserve any of it. At all. But nonetheless, he endured it. Not for himself. but for you and me. That rather than suffering for our sins, he did it for us. The praise team is going to come and lead us in a hymn of preparation.